We're not here just to win an election. We are here to win something for our country. Hello, I'm Nick Cater. Welcome to another Water Cooler Conversation. I'm Executive Director of the Menzies Research Centre. The intergenerational wealth gap is something that's really talked about, and yet it's a very real phenomena. Younger generations are getting poorer in terms of wealth and assets. Older generations in Australia are getting quite a bit wealthier than they were 20 years ago. We'll go into the reasons for that later with my guest, Emily Dye, who's a economist. She's a communications director at GT Communications. She writes for The Spectator, The Daily Telegraph, Reason Magazine, and other publications. Welcome to the Watercooler podcast, Emily. Thank you. It's good to be here. You're an economist at George Washington University, the way you trained, and you're passionate, I think, about economics, liberty, and your adopted country, Australia. Is that true? Very much so. I've come to love Australia. And yeah, I've been here for about three years, and so far it's been it's been a good trip. One of the things I think is very useful in talking to you and something I've enjoyed in our previous conversations is that you bring the outsider's perspective. You know, sometimes if you live in a country all your life, uh, things become so ordinary you don't question them. And yet I think when you come from outside, from a, a similar country in many ways, a, a similar culture, but there's enough difference, isn't there, I think, to highlight certain things about Australia that are quite different. Would you say that's true? Yeah, I'd say so. It was very much a choice. I've discussed with my partner, he's Australian, but we did have that conversation of where do we want to end up in the future? Where do we want to raise a family? Where do we want to live long term? And it's like looking at the Australian culture, having lived here for a while. I like it better, (laughs) to be honest. (laughs) Sorry to the Americans that are listening, but I think there's a lot to be said for the laid back Australian spirit. Yeah, and I I think straight off the bat, it's worth, worth establishing that Australia is overall a very wealthy country. The average wealth of the average household is among the highest in the world. And actually, the discrepancy is lower than in a lot of OECD countries between the rich and the poor. So we're a very fortunate position. But I've been concerned, as you must be, about this widening wealth gap. I suppose the most obvious illustration is in home ownership. Older generations have been able to buy their homes, I mean, often with some struggle, let it be said. But over time, the value of the home has increased. In Australia, we have a lot of investment property. People use that as a vehicle to save for retirement, so people gain wealth that way. At the other end of the scale, people, I guess, like yourself, looking to just put a, a deposit down on a mortgage is, is harder. You know, The price of housing as in relation to annual wages has gone up, right? We've established that. How much has that, is that growing, that wealth gap? And if, if so, if it is growing, why? what are the factors behind that? I think we've seen a pretty dramatic change in the affordability of housing, both in the very recent past and longer term over the last 10 to 20 years, where for my parents and for even for older millennials, it was a lot cheaper, where in the 80s and 90s, it's about five times the median income to purchase a home. Well, now it's 12 times the median income to purchase a home. In Sydney, it's $1.6 million is the median home. And I remember as a kid being like, oh, mom, that beautiful mansion, is that a million dollar house? And now it's the two bedroom apartment that's got a cockroach infestation that I live in. <laughs> <laughs> and so we've definitely seen 
that huge change over time and the wages have not kept up. There's a change in working patterns too, isn't there, and, and study. So young people are typically staying at university longer if they go into higher education. They're not borrowing, of course, to do that. So it's a, a period of, of negative earning, if you like, in their lives. They're building up debt and then emerging into the workforce later on. So be hardly, isn't it then in that case called a lifestyle choice? You make the choice whether to go to university or to go out there and start earning right away. There's different potential earning brackets based on whether you went to university or not. Obviously, if you become a tradie and if you're a man, you have like this, this op- generally men that go into trades tend to have that option of making more money earlier on. Some women do go into that. It's fewer if you go into service industry outside of, out of, high school, your earning potential is going to be a lot lower. And so it may, so it is a toss up, that extra four years, three or four years in Australia, four years in America versus the potential earning. So if you can come out of university and make $90,000 as opposed to coming out of high school and making forty-five for four years, it, it, it definitely has an impact because with, with savings, it's time. Time is the biggest factor, I think. You've heard the criticisms usually made, of course, by baby booners towards millennials that they're spending too much money on smashed avocado on toast. They're they're going out to cafes to enjoy things they could have cooked at home. Is there any truth in that? Is there a lifestyle question here that they just like spending money on having a good time or is that a myth? I I, I find that incredibly frustrating as a young person. (laughs) As an avocado eater yourself. I am an avocado (laughs) eater, but to be honest, the smashed avocado is probably one of the cheapest options right now. (laughs) But I do think there is something to be said for the way we live now versus the way we lived 20 or 30 years ago. We do have a better lifestyle. We've got things like the internet. We've got things like smartphones that didn't exist. So in that way, yes, my lifestyle is a lot nicer than my parents was at this time. But I'm also probably saving a larger percentage of my salary than my parents did at my age, where I'm putting away about 60% of my disposable income to try to save for a house. And it still just doesn't quite, I can't seem to quite keep up with the rising housing prices. Mm. As conservatives, as liberals in Australian terms, we believe strongly, of course, in the value of housing, don't we? I mean, it's a social good, isn't it, for to have a high rate of home ownership. Would you agree with that? Oh, very much so. I think it's the stability more than anything. Right now, I've got a six-month lease on my apartment. So in six months, I could have to move. And that's that's a perpetual risk. That's something that's always in my head. So am I going to consider things like having a family? Well, I don't like the idea of having to move boxes while pregnant. Like It's a very practical. There's, you don't want to raise a kid in an environment where they could have to move every year. That creates instability for the kid. That causes some distress. And I think that's something that we need to be aware of. It's hard to take that next step in life if you don't have the place you're going to live sorted. Family formation, if you like, forming a stable relationship, that is definitely happening later now. We see in the the latest statistics that if you take, say, both women and men under 35, they're more likely to be single by quite, quite a significant margin than they were five years ago when the last census was taken and so on and so on. Is home ownership, is this wealth gap a factor in that delayed family formation? Or is it just that we have a more feckless and individualistic generation growing up? I don't think it's a bad thing necessarily that we're taking time to decide on a partner, decide who we want to spend more time with. I think I've seen a lot of young marriages like from people in my background that have gone 
have been complete disasters. They've married at 18 and then six months later, later, they're like, why did I do this? I had this great idea. So I do think there's something to be said for dating someone longer, really figuring out what you want in a long-term partner before getting married, before having kids. That said, I don't think I think it's problematic when housing is a determinant of you have that long-term relationship. You're in a good place. You've got the career. You've got the financial stability. You've got the person that you like. And you're like, yep, this is this is good. We're set up. And then you can't get the stability of your housing sorted out. That causes problems. And, and beyond even just family, there's also saving for the long term. If we're delaying ho- homeownership, it means that you're going to be paying off a mortgage later into life, which means you're going to have to retire later into life, which it just has these compounding Impacts. I mean, I think, to be honest, in, in terms of policy, it concerns me more that more people don't have their own home when they retire or are still paying off a mortgage than, you know, that it may take a few more years for a young person to save for, for a home because then it does have serious consequences, doesn't it? I mean, it, it, any economic advisor would tell you the best thing you can do, the first thing you should do to prepare, prepare for retirement is to pay off your own home. So you've got a degree of wealth there which will support you through your accommodation and so forth. So without that, you know, people retire without it and they've, they, they've much more likely to be drawing upon the state for their support and possibly more more concerning is they're more likely to have a mus- more miserable final years of their life, right? So in the end, we should be looking at that, shouldn't we, if nothing else as, as a public policy aim. Yeah, absolutely. I think housing is very much that bedrock of financial stability into later into life. And I don't think that can be discounted. You can come up with alternatives. You can be a really good saver and not have a house and invest well and rent your entire life and still have be in a stable point at retirement. But homes provide a very good forced savings plan and it's for savings towards an end. So you spend 20 years, 25, 30 years, putting away money for your housing, essentially, later into life. And so it's not going to whatever more flippant thing that you could be spending on, a, a car, a, the jet skis, whatever it might be. The last 15 years, cheap money, cheap cheap lending, sort of engineered by most central banks around the world, certainly ours. That has only, I think, increased that wealth disparity, hasn't it? Because it's made it easier to borrow for assets if you've got the security behind you. So people have gone out and bought new houses or bigger houses or investment houses or even rare veteran vintage cars. You know, people do that a lot now. So the people that are at the stage in their life when they can add those assets on are fine. Their wealth's increased. But if you're not in a position to borrow or you you don't have that disposable income available, then you just end up in relative terms getting further behind, don't you? So the longer we have a cheap cheap monetary policy, it's the worse it's going to get. I, I agree with that. I think it's probably a good thing that we're having interest rate hikes. I want to see the housing market brought back into line. Yes, that's really hard for people right now. And that is costing people a lot. And it is impacting our economy and risking even a recession. But our housing is it's, it's blown out of proportion. <laughs> and we've also been thinking about it wrong. Housing is it's a place over your it's a place to live. It's a roof over your head. I prefer to think of housing as a consumer good and not as an investment good. But I think in Australia, we have, we view housing as that investment. You get your investment properties, you get the first house, and then you get the second house, and then you get the third house. Because once you've gotten that first one, then you can borrow against that house, and you've got, it, it becomes this 
cycle of it is the way you gain wealth and it's property in your portfolio. It's not this is somebody's home. And we have policies that back that up. We've got negative gearing. So if you're not making money on that rent, you could leave mm. that house empty mm. and you could offset some of those costs of leaving the house empty. Meanwhile, we're reducing supply. Demand is staying the same or going up. And so housing, like those prices are going up both for housing and for rentals. It's paradoxical, isn't it, that you as the official spokesperson for the frustrated younger generation who can't afford to buy houses, which is the title I'm going to give you today, you should be arguing for higher interest rates. I mean, you'd think if housing affordability was an issue, you increased interest rates would only make it harder, but it would actually even thing, level out the playing field, you're suggesting. We've got huge demand for housing, and it's not just people that are demanding housing because they want a place to live. People are demanding housing because they want that investment property. And I think I, I also support land taxes. I don't think it should be profitable to just have houses that don't fit your needs, to have houses that are too big to have. I, I think that we need to kind of cut back on demand and increase supply. Well, we'd, we'd agree on that. As for land tax... Now, this is, I think, where you start getting to policy, economic policies that really do divide the generations. Very much so. And here's why, right? I mean, there are two ways a government can tax. It can tax income or it can tax wealth. Traditionally, we supported the taxation of income here. So you pay as you earn. And that's fine when you've got a lot of people in the workforce working for a long time. But it's if, as is happening, the dependency ratio is growing, that is the number of people not in the workforce who are supported by the taxes of those in it, then you look for other means of taxation and you start looking at wealth. So, But for the people who have the wealth, the older generation, they're going to squeal, aren't they? You know, If you're taxing an asset that they've saved for years to buy, they're going to cry foul and say, well, I saved that thinking it was for my retirement. And they can become a very potent political force, of course. Yeah. Well, I think there's a bit of a misconception as to how it's being implemented. So we've got like the Parité government here in New South Wales, and I believe in the ACT as well, is essentially grandfathering in this idea of a land tax where you've already purchased your home. You're not going to have to pay land tax on the home that you've already purchased. You've already paid stamp duty. It's giving the choice to that next generation. Basically, I'm the one who's going to be paying land tax. And the idea of paying a land tax is a lot more palatable to me than paying that stamp duty. That initial cost, people don't realize that, in a sense, I'm paying interest on that initial cost because that money would be in my deposit mm. and I would be borrowing less if I had that money to just put towards the house. There's years that it's going to take for the stamp. These stamp duties are often like $60,000. Like yeah. when we're talking about a $1.6 million home, it's a lot of money to save up front and so it's going to take additional time, additional time that I'd be renting. Um, so there's a lot of cost to having a stamp duty that is very inefficient. So I personally would prefer a land tax. Yeah. And it has the added, added benefit for a state government, which I think is probably in Dominic, Dominic Perrottet's mind right now, that it evens out revenue, doesn't it? You're not getting windfall revenue when the housing market's running hot and then you know less revenue in poor years. So that's that's just helpful. Yeah, and it disincentivizes that, keep that housing market hot. So we have a lot of incentives right now to keep the housing market going. A lot of superannuation funds are heavily invested in property. We've got a lot of older voters that are heavily invested in property, and they want to see 
see those numbers go up on their portfolios. At the Menzies Research Centre, we're passionate believers in the power of ideas to change conversations and shape the future. Thanks to podcasts, we've extended our circle of conversations to thousands of people every month. Podcasts are a great medium for think tanks. Listeners turn into podcasts for longer, more sophisticated conversations than they can find on conventional media, and we're very happy to provide them. And thanks to the generosity of our supporters, we can deliver them for free. You can show your support by subscribing to the Menzies Research Centre from just $10 a month. Go to menziesrc.org slash subscribe or click on the link in the podcast notes. So hand in hand with this widening economic gap, which we've identified, you also notice a a gap in voting intention. You know, it was always the case that young people were possibly more likely to vote for parties of the left. But but now that has just become an accelerating trend to the point at which in the last election amongst certainly women under 35, the coalition came third. Labour, Greens first, then the coalition are struggling. So there's a radical... I mean, for several elections now, if, if only the under 35s had been allowed to vote, we would have had a Labour landslide. And the opposite, if we'd have done the more sensible thing and restrict, <laughs> raise the age of voting consent to 55, which is what I'm broadly in favour of. <laughs> but, uh, I think you've already got a generational advantage because we've got the, the boomers. They're, yeah. they're quite a bit bigger than my generation. <laughs> so what I'm getting at is there a link between the two. Is, is this economic divide actually producing a political divide as well. I I can tell you that as someone who's studied economics and who cares a lot about capitalism and believes in the free market, when I was having to try to get my landlord to do her legal obligation, fulfill her legal obligations and get rid of the cockroach infestation in my apartment, I was I was ready to don red and like shout down with the bourgeoisie. Is there is that frustration of I don't feel like my landlord is adding much value to my life by owning this property because I don't I don't want to have the flexibility of a rental right now. I want to have the stability of a home. And that is where landlords provide value is they provide that flexibility. Right now, a lot of landlords aren't providing that value because that's not actually what the renters want. Um, and feeling like I can't quite get there, can't quite get the wealth, can't quite get over the hill. I'm still on the on that spinning wheel. And it it brings frustration to the younger generation. And they're turning to socialism. And so, and so they do. They're like, "Well, we we need to even the playing field. We need a we need to fix inequality." And, and I don't believe this. I don't believe that socialism is the answer. I'm glad to hear that. In case you're worried, but but I understand the emotional sentiment of wanting to see things evened out, wanting to see that wealth redistributed. It's understandable. It's understandable. I don't think it's the best way to have a functioning society, and I think that we're we need to fix the distortions in our markets so capitalism works better. Would it help if there was greater economic literacy? Absolutely. Better economic literacy and, I think, financial literacy. I think we should be teaching economics and finance above even, say, calculus. And I loved calculus. I think people need to understand how to save the power of compound interest. And they need to understand how a free market works. And that when my employer is doing well, my employer can pay me more. And so I'm. it's not the enemy. I'm on the same side in many ways as my employer. But either way, it's fu- there is 
it is fueling a sense that the whole system's broken, we've got to overturn everything, throw it away. Is that part of what we're seeing feeding into the, you know, pull-down statues movement, et cetera, et cetera? Um, do you think that the frustration, an uh, inability to, 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 to make ends meet and to accumulate wealth, is that what is driving that or is that something different? I think the fr- there's, that is one of the key drivers of the whole socialism movement. It's that pushing back against inequality because socialism, it's an economics concept in many ways. It's making sure you're providing these resources, you're providing the health care, which I actually do support. I very much love Australia's healthcare system coming from America where it's a mess. But I don't think the American system can be called a capitalist system. It's a distorted, crony capitalist system. I think we've over-empowered insurers in the United States. And by connecting health care to your employment, it makes it harder to be self-employed. It gives more power to the employer. In a way, it, it sifts the scales in a way that's not helpful for people and takes away a lot of the bargaining power that the employee has. So you're not able to ne- negotiate that better job. You can't move your job. You lose that flexibility in the market that makes for better outcomes for everyone. The, the consumer choice, but consumer choice for jobs because yeah. we've we've tied things together. So you, you can't leave your work because what if you get sick? And if you get sick, then you're going to be stuck with a $200,000 bill that you'll never be able to pay off in your life. Well, I think it's helpful to, to lift the debate beyond Australia. So let, let me ask, is, is, is the wealth gap and all the consequent tensions that we have noted in Australia is... Is that also happening in United States, Canada, Britain, similar countries? Yeah, I think so. I think we were discussing earlier off off the mic about the great resignation and what's happening in the US with that bargaining power. I think is is very interesting. We've got the younger people that are in those less secure jobs are now getting that bargaining power to push for better leave time. My sister was very excited because she got a full two weeks leave for for a year, two weeks a year for a year. As a, living in Australia now for three years, I'm like, really, only two weeks? But that American perspective. So I think that has been a good shift. But when you don't, you don't get two weeks leave. You only get five days leave in a year. There is that disparity. You feel like you don't have much power. You don't have that ability to negotiate. As ever, the question is. What can be done? Specifically, what could politicians do? I mean, how can we adjust our policy settings in a way that might not exacerbate these wealth gaps and might, in fact, close them to some extent? I think housing is probably, as we've discussed, the biggest factor that is causing that wealth gap. So I would love to see a larger housing supply. I was listening to a YouTube video the other day, and they were saying that in Australia, they have the most arable land per capita of any nation in the world. (laughs) Arable land, so that's not the outback. With only 25 million people, I think we got some room. Room to grow, room to grow our cities, both up and outward. You'd think so, wouldn't you? There is enough space. (laughs) (laughs) It's a very long, long drive from here to Melbourne, even. (laughs) I think we need more cities. We need more space. Um, we we don't we need to be less afraid to grow. And I think we have a lot of restrictions on that growth. And if we could pull back on our zoning policies, we could see a lot a large decrease in housing prices. Because I don't think it's the house that's itself that expensive. It's the land. 
And in taxation? Yes. What would you like to see in taxation? Two main things. I would I would like to see the stamp duty repealed yeah. in order to make it easier to save for that deposit. You can get you can purchase a house sooner if you don't have to also save for a stamp duty. So I think that's a huge move in the right direction. And the other thing is GST on new housing. Currently, you have to pay if you it's a new home, then you have to pay GST, which just reduces the profit profitability for construction companies and property developers who are building these homes. They also have to factor in the fact that there's going to be GST, and in order for their homes to be competitive, mm-hmm. they're going to be eating a lot of that cost, and so that cuts into profits. They seem deceptively simple measures. I mean, of course, they won't they won't be. I mean, there's. There's a, there's a fiscal gap of some substantial size to The government to fix, doesn't love giving up money. <laughs> no. On spending, on, on, on government debt, on, on spending, it's clear to me that, that the spending of the last two and a half years, you know, justified or unjustified by the pandemic, is going to be a tremendous burden on your generation, not so mine. Oh, yeah. I mean, I hope to be earning money and therefore paying income tax for... For several years more, but you're going to be doing it for a lot longer than I am, and and certainly on Treasury forecasts. Well, Treasury forecasts only go out forty years, so they can't tell us. They can't. They're not even predicting when we might be able to pay down this debt. That's going to be a burden on you and your your generation and subsequent generations for a long, long time to come, isn't it? Yeah, and that and that's taxes without value. Anyways, we're paying our taxes, and a percentage of that has to go to paying the interest on the debt. And so we're not getting any services from that. So I think I, I agree completely that it should be a top priority to cut back on that debt, to reduce the deficit. Some policies that I thought were a little bit crazy. We're continuing the COVID leave at this point. I guess I know that a lot of people have COVID, but with the amount of power that employees have right now, with the high levels of employment and low levels of unemployment, I think that the employers could have eaten some of that instead of the government paying for that. What I don't get, Emily, is why there's not more anger amongst young people at this. Why weren't they saying, well, it wasn't our disease anyway. I mean, if you're under 25, there's a chance of you dying of COVID is statistically insignificant. And above that, it's not not that high. And yet we we borrowed money in order to try and squash this thing. And you, the the generation that are least affected by COVID are going to be picking up the check. Oh, I, I mean, I'm personally very frustrated by it. Why aren't it. more young people frustrated? It's, I think it's abstract. It's, it's money in the future. We don't think about money in the future as much as we think about money now. It isn't as painful. Like, if you think about it, it's like, oh, in, in a year, I'm going to have to pay my reg on my car. Well, if I had to pay my reg on my car next week, that's 800 bucks. Like, that's a lot of money. That's painful. I'm thinking about it. Right now, it's like, oh, whatever. It's just like... It's in the back of mind, out of sight, out of mind. Yeah. And so it isn't as sensitive. So it sounds like a good, politically it sounds like a good card to play, but, you know, intergenerational theft, but but it doesn't actually mean anything on the ground. Yeah, on the, and the costs of cutting, cutting on government programs, government spending, that's an immediate cost. We feel that. So if you reduce the... Job, job keeper payments, job maker, all of the all of the welfare payments that have gone out during COVID. If we cut those back, then it's an immediate, immediate pain, immediate suffering, as opposed to future pain that we don't think about. That's honestly a very abstract. There will be less things from the government in the future, less resources in the future. How do you see this going? I mean, where, where, where is this taking us? To a nice place or, or not? I, I tend to be pretty optimistic for the future. I think. 
things will change. We will get better. I think that as a society, we've been moving upwards, both in, in technology and in freedom in many ways. So I think that things will get better, but we do need to be aware of major concerns. And I think the U.S. is a warning for us where they, their debt has gotten out of hand. The government is struggling to, remain, to, con- to maintain order in many ways. We have gun violence that is, and that's a whole can of worms, but it, the U.S. has become more violent recently. It's become more partisan. And then basic health things have actually decreased with the life expectancy in the United States is decreasing. Someone that's my age in the U.S., the most likely way I would die is by gun violence, which is <laughs> that when I heard that, I was like, that can't be right. But it has now overtaken traffic fatalities, which also are worse in the U.S. than here. So I think there's a warning of the crazy, overburdensome government, that crazy spending, the sharp divide in partisanship. So we need to look at that and be like, we don't want to go there. And politically in the United States, it seems extraordinary that that um, at the last presidential election, anyway, you know, both both candidates were well past normal retirement age. Yes, <laughs> and that the, no better younger talent could apparently be found. That seems extraordinary. And and again, I don't see why I don't see why young young voters are not saying. Move over, Grandpa. Why this hasn't become a movement? You know, we we actually want younger, more people tuned in to to our generation. But that doesn't seem to be happening, does it? I, one th- thing that really blew my mind was Bernie Sanders, the oldest of the lot, was so popular <laughs> among my generation. I don't, I don't fully understand that. I think that there's a lot of young people that see political activism being going to a protest, making a sign posting on social media, changing your Instagram feed to a blackout or whatever it might be as being political activism instead of going to the meetings. If, if, I, I've been to plenty of like the party meetings in my hometown, and I, I definitely was the only one that didn't need to dye my hair. <laughs> and most people didn't dye their hair. It was a lot of it was a sea of white. Mm. Uh, Nothing wrong with that. And there's nothing wrong with that. <laughs> but I think that if we want to if we want to have the candidates, if we want to have the people that are actively engaged, it starts at that go to your city council meeting, go to your those kinds of things and you don't see young people there. We may see the dream contest between Governor Ron DeSantis of Florida and Governor Newsom of California, both of whom I think are in their early fifties. And that counts better. as young. That counts as young. I mean, I, I liked Tulsi Gabbard. I liked Andrew Yang, but <laughs> <laughs> alas. I, either way, we're most likely to see a younger, a younger, younger, contest, yeah, which is a good thing. I would think. I think so. I think from many, like from very practical levels, even. I, I don't want to worry that my president is going to die of COVID as much. Emily, thank you very much for joining us on on the Water Cooler Conversation, a true conversation. I think this time exploring various topics. You've certainly helped me work through some of this and I hope be more more tune when we next work on policy in this area to the need to accommodate the ambitions and desires of younger Australians. Yes, thank you. It's been a it's been a fun conversation. Thank you. 
You've been listening to another water cooler conversation brought to you by the Menzies Research Centre. We'd like to bring you many more, of course, and you can help us by subscribing from just $10 a month. Go to www.menziesrc.org slash subscribe. I'm Nick Cater, and thank you for listening. Thank you.